This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the first movie in our Season 3 March Trilogy Month, Ocean's Eleven from 2001, directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by Ted Griffin, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, and Andy Garcia. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be covering the second of the Oceans trilogy, Oceans 12, directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by David Holmes, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast, G-M-O-A-T podcast. Additionally, did you know that in the episode descriptions of every episode, we put the links to take you right to either the notes for that specific episode or to the full ranked and graded list of movies we've covered so far, including The Godfather, Shawshank Redemption, Jurassic Park, Pretty Woman, and many, many more. Just open up the episode and you can find them right there to get more information on the show. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. All right, Ocean's Eleven. Dad, this is one of my favorite comfort movies of all time. What stylistically about these movies did Steven Soderbergh create so that it's so endlessly fun to hang out with these guys all the time? It is so almost comical is the level of communication and how they interact with each other. I mean, just for the simple fact that the uh, Chinese acrobat speaks in Chinese and they respond to him in English like they all understand the Chinese. He's like their Chewbacca. And, you know, I mean, it's everything from, you know, the scene with uh, Brad Pitt laying on the bar, staring at the TV, and George Clooney says, well, we've got 10. Do we need, do we need another? We, we, we need another. You think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more. It, and it's just, there's just this interplay. And it, it looks like they're all having such a good time either in the actual characters themselves doing the the heist or the actors playing their parts. I think they imbue their characters so much with a level of confidence beyond what you would think in a normal movie situation. Most villains usually, or at least criminals, let's not say they're villains, I mean, they are theoretically anti-heroes in this sense because they're criminals who are stealing money illegally, but you're always rooting for them. There is a sense of comfort with each other, with the situation, that they never really feel out of place. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Everybody in this movie, and throughout all three of them, 
just looks like they're having such fun doing these movies that it translates to the audience that it's just a fun environment. It feels like if you got all of your, I don't know, college roommates back together again and just had kind of a party filming a movie. That's kind of what this atmosphere feels like. I think realistically, these guys developed a bond in the first film that carried them through to the second and third films, and I think we're going to find that. I think that's one of the reasons, because we had, you know, Bernie Mac died tragically while he was young, and the first thing that George Clooney said was, as well, We've lost lost a big one, and as a result, we're never going to be able to recreate. And so even if they wanted to do a fourth, he made known that once Bernie Mac had passed, they couldn't do it. Yeah, and we've unfortunately now lost Carl Reiner's in that list. I think Elliot Gould is still around, as best I know. Oh, yes. I'm trying to think if anybody else has, has unfortunately passed. Jerry Weintraub. The producer who does bit parts and was in the this film and then had a bigger part in 13. Yeah, okay. He's the guy that's sitting at the bar. Okay, well, yeah. He's sitting at the table talking about nothing goes on without Terry Benedict and blah, blah, blah. And, and Yeah, yes. he's the guy that runs his mouth and then yes. he actually has a small bit part in 12 and he's the big high roller in 13. Okay. Yeah, he passed, I believe, early in 2021. Okay. Yeah, so theoretically, if Bernie Mac hadn't passed away, they probably could have done two more at least, I would think, because I think they do have such a great time doing these that you would have thought that at some point that they would have put one together, be it for that the cast just wasn't able to be together again. Well, and I'll I'll tell a little uh, anecdote. Your mother's cousin, Jason, uh, while he was in the Marine Corps, was in San Diego on base and he had to leave. So he decided to walk up into uh, the gaslight district up from the Marine and Naval base, just offshore in San Diego. And he walked by and he did a double take and he turned around and the guy turned back and, and went over and shook his hand and said, thank you for your service. And it was George Clooney. And so George Clooney asked him, you know, where he was stationed, what he had been doing told him he had been in Iraq. And then he says, well, what are you doing here? And he said, well, most of us all have percentages of the gross. So we decided to go through the books. Uh, instead of having our agents do it, we all got together in a hotel here in San Diego and made a weekend. So that's why we're here is divvying up the profits. So even at that point in time, they were looking for excuses just to get together and kind of just hang out and have fun. Yeah. I mean, and it translates so incredibly well that I think that just hanging out with these guys has always been a favorite pastime of mine. Whenever these movies are on, I said it last week, I find a way to watch them because they're just easily fun. They're the type of people that you, even though they're criminals, would always want to just kind of be friends with. And realistically, I don't know how many of them were really all that much. I think they go through the script and they memorize their lines, but there's just an ease and a comfort with each other that it jumps off the screen. I know, and, and I'm sure I'll be bringing it up a little bit because the root of this is the 1960s version of Ocean's Eleven, which was a Rat Pack film, which was done specifically 
So the guys who are all in the Rat Pack with Sinatra and Martin and Joey Bishop and Sammy Davis could all get together and hang out and do a film and still go out and drink every night. Yeah, but this really, other than kind of the major plan and one character name, has almost nothing to do with the original. It does not. But I think that the same relationship, the same kind of group, the friendship, the camaraderie, took its cue from that original 1960s film. The 1960s film, quite frankly, was boring and <laughs> rather poorly done. Yeah, but uh, but the, the camaraderie, the relationship of all the actors in the film, I think clearly took its cue from that earlier film for this one. So what is your relationship to this movie? Like I said, I know that growing up, my dad always talked about the Rat Pack and Sinatra, Dean Martin. I grew up watching Dean Martin on television, late 60s, early 70s, Sinatra hanging out with him. And my dad always talking about how all these guys would get together and do a film. And they one of the films was this Ocean's Eleven. It happened to be on, oh, I think at the time when still American Movie Classics AMC was doing actual films from yesteryear, it came on and I watched it. And I thought, oh, okay, well, yeah. There were guys who were part of the Rat Pack who uh, I never thought they were part of the Rat Pack, but apparently they were. And I thought, I watched the film and thought, okay, then this comes out. And I'm like excited because I'm thinking they're going to take the original concept and they're going to up the ante significantly. And so I'm watching the trailers and I'm thinking, this really looks cool. And if I remember right, we took the whole family to the movies, or was it just mom and I? No, I definitely did not go to this. You went on a date night. Okay. That's my recollection, is is you went on a date night, and then I think this came out in, like, November, if I remember right. And we were supposed to do, like, Thanksgiving or one of those, like, cookie-baking weekends shortly after. And Steve and Steph went to the movie as well. And I remember both mom and Stephanie not liking this movie. And so for the longest time, I thought this was just like a guy's movie. And kind of in a certain way, it is. I mean, the majority of the cast is all men of a certain age, uh, with the exception maybe of Elliot Gould and Carl Reiner, but and majority white, save for Bernie Mac and the guy who plays Yen. So And uh, Don Cheadle. Uh, Don Cheadle, for that matter. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I misplaced him like his credits in this movie. Anyway, regardless of that, I remember after the fact, having seen this movie when it got released on DVD and loving this movie. And this became like a staple of anytime any one of my guy friends would stay over, you know, the sleepover type of thing from middle school. This was always in the repertoire. I think you had bought it as a like castaway from a family video like six months later. And so this was always on. I remember watching this movie endlessly. I remember every funny line that I kept trying to repeat. Just the small mannerisms and ticks of some of the guys that I picked up and used for years because I'm like, those guys are really cool. And for whatever reason, this movie has just been in my life and a part of my life probably for 20 years at this point. I think to some extent, 
there is a guilty pleasure movie that everyone has. This is not something that's going to be a critically acclaimed movie. You know, it's not something that people are going to go, oh, this is real art. But it's a film that everybody likes it. It's either you really love the film or you don't like it at all. No, no, no. This is not a guilty pleasure film for me. This isn't guilty at all. I love this film in the same way that I love something like Knives Out. It's something that shouldn't probably be a fan favorite or something that's extremely popular, but finds a vein of society. I mean, this was the fifth highest grossing movie of 2001, and it made two sequels that were also pretty well grossing. But I I think these hit a certain vein of the population that likes Vegas, likes con men, likes heist movies. I mean, those are all three things that mix together and somehow created a franchise out of almost thin air with a bunch of guys that like to hang out together and do these movies. And it was, even though it was technically a one for them, it really didn't seem like it. No, if if you're naming guilty pleasure movies, A Knight's Tale is a guilty pleasure movie for me. That is a kind of crappy movie that is on tons of streaming services all the time. It's a bad Heath Ledger performance, and yet almost every time it's on, I watch it. Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. (laughs) Just because that hits a certain vein of uh, my childhood and youth and the first time I saw that movie. Uh, Let's see here. Other potential guilty pleasure movies. It wasn't a guilty pleasure movie until we reviewed it on the show, but Wedding Crashers is now a guilty pleasure movie. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So anyway. But yes, my relationship to this movie, it's been a part of my life. I've seen it probably two or three times a year minimum for 20 years. And I stop and watch this movie or I watch Ocean's 13 just about as often as I can. And anytime it's on cable and there's nothing to do, I stop and watch those. I don't have the same relationship with 12 because it's not in Vegas, because the plan seems kind of convoluted. It comes in and out of the plot a little bit more. It's got more hidden. It gets really meta with that one weird part, which we'll talk about next week. But 13 and 11, I could probably watch on a loop without any problem for an entire weekend. Yes. So uh, let's delve into the rest of the movie then. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Following his release from prison, Danny Ocean, George Clooney, meets his partner in crime and friend, Rusty Ryan, Brad Pitt, to propose a heist. The plan consists of simultaneously robbing the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand Casinos, all owned by Terry Benedict, Andy Garcia, for more than $150 million. Danny and Rusty recruit nine friends and criminal specialists. Linus Caldwell, a young and talented pickpocket. Matt Damon. Frank Catton, a discredited casino dealer and con man. Bernie Mac. Virgil and Turk Malloy, a pair of gifted mechanics. Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn. Livingston Dell, an electronics and surveillance expert. Eddie Jameson. Basher Tarr, an explosive expert. Don Cheadle. Saul Bloom, an elderly con man. Carl Reiner and the amazing Yen, an accomplished acrobat, Shaobo Kin. Facing impossible security and overwhelming odds, will the team get the loot and get away? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Steven Soderbergh as director. Ted Griffin wrote the screenplay. George Clooney as Danny Ocean. 
Bernie Mac as Frank Catton, Brad Pitt as Robert Rusty Ryan, Elliot Gould as Ruben Tishkoff, Casey Affleck as Virgil Malloy, Scott Kahn as Turk Malloy, Eddie Jameson as Living Sindel, Don Cheadle as Basher Tarr, Xiaobo King as The Amazing Yen, Carl Reiner as Saul Bloom, Matt Damon as Linus Caldwell, Andy Garcia as Terry Benedict, and Julia Roberts as Tess Ocean. Recognition for this movie. Upon release, the film was a success at the box office and with critics. It was the fifth highest grossing movie of 2001. Ocean's Eleven had a budget of $85 million. On its opening weekend, it grossed an estimated $38 million and was the top box office draw for the weekend. The film grossed $183 million in the United States and $267 million worldwide, leaving a worldwide gross of $450 million. Entertainment Weekly put the Ocean's Eleven heist scene on its end-of-the-decade best-of list, saying, Featuring three impregnable Vegas casinos and 11 ring-a-ding criminals, Steven Soderbergh's 2001 Roll of the Dice provided the most winning robbery sequence of the decade. In a poll during November 2008, Empire Magazine called Ocean's Eleven the 500th best film on the 500 greatest movies of all time. Did you know? The Bellagio let the crew tap into their security system to get real surveillance footage of the casino. Did you know? The entire cast worked for less than their usual salaries to bring down the budget. Did you know? Steven Soderbergh wanted the actors to hang out on set to make sure they had good chemistry. During downtime, the cast often crowded around Carl Reiner to listen to his stories. Did you know? Andy Garcia said it wasn't easy to do a serious scene with Carl Reiner because Reiner was just so funny. Did you know? Matt Damon's part as Linus Caldwell, the pickpocket, was initially meant for Mark Wahlberg, who turned down the role in order to star in Planet of the Apes. Thank you, Marky Mark. (laughs) Did you know? Don Cheadle is uncredited despite having a major role. This is due to a dispute over his billing. Cheadle wanted above-the-title billing alongside George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Brad Pitt. When he was refused, he refused to be credited at all. Cheadle received above-the-title billing in Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13. Did you know? Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson were to play the brothers Virgil and Turk, but dropped out due to filming the Royal Tannenbaums from 2001. Danny Glover also turned down the role of Frank Catton in order to be in that film. Did you know? George Clooney and the other actors played pranks on Julia Roberts. Sometimes they left 5 a.m. wake-up calls for her when she didn't need to be on set until noon. Did you know? Most of the movie was shot in Las Vegas, where producer Jerry Weintraub had many connections. He got the filmmakers access to the casinos. George Clooney called him the Pope of Vegas. We'll take a quick break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, how would you pitch this movie to a friend? The Sting meets NASA and goes to Las Vegas. NASA? Yeah, there, there's a large amount of technical aspect to this, the heist and all aspects of it. And so that was what I came up with as far as technical aspects of it. I don't know. That doesn't make sense with NASA, if you ask me. Okay, well, fine. You Microsoft? Apple? Yeah, whatever. Okay. That's mine. Take it or leave it. Well, I went with the thing that you didn't really focus on in your plot summary. With the support of his friends, Danny wins back his wife by robbing the guy she's currently dating. <laughs> uh, okay. 
I mean, realistically, that's what this movie is about. It's him trying to prove that he knew what he was doing all along. Yeah. Best performance for you? Clooney. George Clooney, after he left television and uh, ER, kind of stumbled around a bit with films. And then he did the Batman with the bat nipples. And uh, his career was kind of tanking. I think this film elevated him to a status of being really cool and somebody in, that everybody wanted to work with in Hollywood. And I think he, he, the personality that you see when he does interviews and such comes out so clearly in this role. It may not have been a lot of acting on his part, but he makes the movie in my opinion. He is my best secondary performer. It's interesting that you mentioned the place in his career But you think about it, this is the tail end of the Julia Roberts experience. So she's maybe the one character that it doesn't work for. But Don Cheadle goes on to do multiple other projects. He ends up getting nominated for an Oscar after this. He's now an Avenger. Matt Damon, this is the first of his two franchises that would come out in, I think, a year. Because he also had the Bourne Identity that came out shortly after this as well. And that created his second franchise. Brad Pitt, it's on the tail end of his 90s run as the pre-bad boy of the 90s doing all of these random cameos where it's just him looking good, but can he carry a film that's a little bit more serious that doesn't have to rely sheerly on his looks but can on his charisma? You talk about him as far as his transition into the next phase of his career, and Clooney, this is the one that really made him a movie star. So I think for all of these characters, and it's going to come up in my scores reflective later, but realistically, just about everybody connected with this movie succeeded on the back of this movie if they're a bigger star today. I think this is a vehicle that probably carried them to that and really announced that these are the major players in Hollywood right now. But my best performance was actually Steven Soderbergh. I don't think it's understated the accomplishment that he did by creating this environment. Maybe some of it can be put on the casting directors or the just cast collectively, but I think he creates such a distinctive style of these movies. There really isn't anything like it, and it's hard to put a finger on it. When we went and saw the now sequel or spin-off movie Ocean's 8, we immediately walked out and were like, that's not it. I mean, it was it was kind of a letdown because it's hard to have the same type of movie. I mean, it's rare that you get a director to do all three movies for a franchise. Spielberg did it for the Indiana Jones films. But how many other franchises? I mean, even Star Wars didn't have the same director for any of its parts. So for this guy to take three different films in, I think, what, six, seven years max? and be able to create such a unique and distinctive style that I don't think anybody else could have done that creates such a fun environment. And I think made it fun for everybody else. And the fact that we have been talking about it for 20 plus minutes already about how fun the environment of this movie is that pops off the screen, that can only be credited to him for creating that environment, but also finding good takes for all of those guys that pops off the screen. I don't think this movie works without his careful and steady hand in creating the environment that was around the characters, 
that's built around the movie and that you're able to do it multiple times over. So for me, he's the best performer just from that accomplishment alone. I can understand your points. I, I really can. Best secondary for you? Brad Pitt, because I think it really had to actually carry a little bit more, as you indicated. And I think it kind of elevated him into a more mature level as an actor for the next 15, 20 years and um, made him into more than just a good looking guy, but somebody who actually could act and could portray a character beyond just the sheer looks. This is a purely charismatic part, but I would agree he's a second lead in this movie. But yeah, I I, I just really liked the, the character and I liked the way he portrayed it. All right. My best secondary was Clooney, as I mentioned before. I don't need to go too much in more into detail, so I'm going to move to most charismatic then. Carl Reiner for me. I mean, how else can you make a supposed deep European or Eastern European gun dealer make him seem funny? But you have to have such a talent and a collective confidence in yourself that you could take such a character that so could be easily deadpanned and yet both play it serious and funny. I don't think there are too many actors that could have ever done that. I think you might have been able to do it with Alan Arkin, who was suggested for this role, but there are not many guys that are this talented at that age to be able to pull off a character like Saul Bloom. I also have Carl Reiner, and it's charismatic is, is we're talking about a man who embodied 50 years of entertainment. He was on one of the most popular television shows of the early 50s as both a star or a co-star and a writer who had best-selling, or excuse me, high-volume-selling albums that he did with Mel Brooks, the uh, 2,000-year-old man. He transcended, he created what's considered one of the top five sitcoms of all time in the Dick Van Dyke show. He then transitioned into doing movies and directed films such as Oh God, Steve Martin and the Jerk, and and, did, and then goes back in his 80s to being an actor and portraying a character that's both affable and believable as a con man. And you just love him as a character. For my generation, because I grew up with Carl Reiner, if you paid any attention, and maybe a lot of people my age didn't know or understand who Carl Reiner was, I did because I loved, I, I always said I was probably one generation off. I loved that whole World War II generation and, and being an adult in the 50s and paying attention to all of those actors and the early TV shows and the comedians and the entertainers and such. And I've always loved Carl Reiner. And this just opened him up to being visible to not just my generation, but future generations who could learn and appreciate and love what he brought to entertainment in this country uh, for decades. I'm going to make a small analogy. For the way that my generation feels about Betty White is due to 
hot in Cleveland, the Golden Girls maybe, if you got it in reruns, and that one episode of SNL. And that made a whole new chapter where she was relatable to our generation. In my generation, you can say the same thing with Carl Reiner in these movies. This was his last chapter, but this made him accessible for a whole new reason. I never watched, really, the Dick Van Dyke show. I kind of have an idea of it, but it's not like I grew up with it. I never watched pretty much any of the movies he ever did, except for these. And I really have my entrance point and knowledge of him. And yes, I do appreciate some of the interviews and such that he did with Mel Brooks afterward, comedians and cars type of thing. But realistically, we know him for playing Saul Bloom and playing him this well. And so I'm thankful to these movies for that. He's an icon. And I really, you know, there's a, there's certain people that I would love to say that I had a chance to see or meet. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I always hoped that I would get a chance to meet Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks. Well, you still got Mel. Yes, I do. Rob Reiner's out there for you, yeah. Yeah, I know. But um, it's rare that when uh, a celebrity passes that I actually have a guttural emotional feeling like I've suffered a personal loss, and I did when Carl died. Never met the man, but I had spent so much time watching his work and enjoying his work and enjoying what he did that I, you know, I, it personally hurt. And I will say, it's not often that I do this. I sent a personal message, direct message on Twitter to Carl Reiner before he passed and told him, I don't know if he ever read it or, he, or if he did, he never responded but I did tell him that how much he meant to me growing up and what his entertainment, his sense of humor, his work had done to entertain me and have relevancy to my life. Let's move to best scene then. Uh, these are the ones that I had down. Parole, Atlantic City, Movie Star Poker, Recruiting Montage, The Plan, Tess, The Pinch, Heist Night, SWAT, and Bellagio Fountain. Did I miss any? Nope. All right. For you, what is the best scene then? To me, the best scene is the plan. It's at Ruben's house discussing it. Carl Reiner goes, all right, so we overcome the impenetrable safe. And, oh, yeah, and then we have the elevators. And, you know, and they just keep making it sound more and more impossible. And no matter what they say is impossible, they just move forward and say, yeah, we got it all figured out. There are two big scenes for me that I think would be tied. So it's the actual performance of the heist and the recruiting montage. Cause I think they're two of the most fun, but well-paced scenes in any movie. I mean, the recruiting montage, when they pick up and they finish the conversation with Ruben and the needle drop is there and they start going through all of the guys as they're recruiting and Danny and Rusty going back and forth. Oh, Phil Tarantino, dead. What happened? Cancer. Oh, did you send flowers? No, but I dated his wife. I mean, just the (laughs) interplay and the, the speed at which that entire moment and I mean, it's probably, what, 10 different scenes strung together, but how funny that is. So which one's the amazing yen? Oh, it's the little Chinese guy. <laughs> They're all little <laughs> Chinese guys, of course. But 
it's that interplay. And you take that to its logical conclusion. Okay, so if we're going to do this fast pace, we're really going to get the heist together because there's got to be so many different, it's like a, it's a movie magic act in its final scene when we talk about the prestige and the reveal of everything else. How do they pull off the magic act? Because the heist has to be the focal point. If you don't have a good heist and you don't pull some punches and have a good reveal by the end of it, the rest of this movie just falls apart. But they have such a great, almost choreography with how they did the editing, how they did all of the staging and the setup, and how all of the characters are placed specifically and strategically in order to carry out possibly one of the uh, most clever heists that you'll ever see in a film ever. I think that easily both of those could be the best scene of this movie in a scene filled with some of my favorite scenes ever. But for a favorite scene, I'll go with the recruiting montage. Again, between all of the the humor that's available in that scene, you want to talk about Saul at the dog track, or, you know, I already mentioned uh, recruiting Yen, the sequence with Matt Damon, you're in or you're out, you know, all of that stuff. They're, they're just some of my favorite moments in this movie. Favorite scene for you? I already said Ruben's house. Okay. My most indelible, though, is the reveal. You're, you're not separating out best and favorite when we do these, then. Oh. Well, I also That's have... why I ask best and favorite. Okay. So my mistake. And uh, it's... Uh, my favorite, I guess, is still Ruben's house, because I thought it was hilarious to watch the interaction and how they're disclosing this and how they keep asking the questions and then... Oh, Okay. All right, so most indelible then? Is the reveal. The thing is, is that I remember watching it at the theater and then having to watch it again and realize that they had planted all of the clues to how it was going to be done in plain sight, but hidden. For example, they were talking or one point, there's just voiceover. It's Clooney and Pitt and they're going back and forth and they say, all right, we need to have an exact replica of the... uh, the vault for or for practice purposes, more or less. And uh, it actually took me two watches to pick up on all the clues that they had, right down to the little pine tree hanging off the uh, yeah the air freshener the air freshener hanging off the rear mirror of the uh, SWAT van. I mean, like I didn't pick that up the first time around. Well, and that's the other thing, and it's going to come up in my remaining questions, but. When you first watch the film, even you don't notice it's Brad Pitt's voice as the SWAT commander. I did. I certainly didn't until he pulls up the face shield when they're up in the casino floor. But for me, the most indelible moment of this movie is kind of a special one for me. It's the thing that I will always think about with this movie, and it's why I love this piece of music. I often find that I love certain pieces of music or certain songs particularly because they remind me of some of my favorite movies. And Claire de la Lune, uh, I probably butchered that, but it might be Claire de Lune. It's a Debussy song. That ending piano montage outside the Bellagio Fountain is just one of my favorite moments in this movie. It was apparently the last thing they filmed and was apparently very memor- or emotional for the entire crew because it's kind of reflective of what they were feeling at the time. It's a movie and a moment and a job well done, and now we get to reflect on it collectively one last time. I have had opportunities in my life 
uh, high school theater productions, graduations, different projects, something that you've undertaken where you've achieved something that you almost couldn't believe you actually were able to achieve. And you have that moment of reflection where you can just stand and bask in the glory and the feeling of achievement, the overwhelming sense of win, of victory uh, that, that you have. And for anybody who's experienced that, you can put yourself at that moment where they're standing at the fountains and you just go, we did it. And you can feel it. And I know that I felt it watching that scene for the first time. And I feel it every time I watch that scene since. It's a piece of music that always imbues a certain calm and satisfaction that I will always love about that moment. But the achievement, the pride, the satisfaction of a job well done and everything that you can see emotionally as they're one by one leaving that that moment of collective joy. I mean, often when you mention it, I can sit back and I can appreciate something. That's usually a moment of self-reflection. You very rarely get a group of people to be able to accomplish and reflect on something simultaneously. And to have 10 of the 11 guys all to be able to appreciate in that moment and be able to film that in such a way that you can see it all, I think that it was, again, it's another case where they probably didn't need to act. It was just... Soderbergh figured out how to stage a scene and get them all in a very highly volatile and emotional state, and then they could just film it. And it comes off extremely well at the end of this movie. It's a, it's a very fitting conclusion. All right, let's take another quick break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us again. All right, Dad, before we move on, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we have a few. Uh, Stuart Bevan, uh, 73, was a British actor. Early career was known for playing uh, Clifford Jones in Doctor Who. He did several films, uh, House of Mortal Sin, Ivanhoe, The Scouting Book of Four Boys, while uh, on television, he passed this week. Xavier Mark, uh, 74, was a Mexican actor. But he had done a few American films, uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which was a Clint Eastwood film, The Bridge in the Jungle, and Legend of Zorro. Dale Critchlow, 92, was an American actor who was in uh, Napoleon Dynamite and uh, Church Ball. Uh, younger actress, uh, Lindsay Perlmans, uh 43, she was uh, in Chicago Justice, was a member of the Second City Conservatory, played the role of Joy Fletcher for five episodes, on Chicago Justice, also had guest roles in Sneaky Pete, American Housewife, The Purge, and General Hospital. Uh, and David Brenner, 59, American film editor, Academy Award winner for editing for Born on the Fourth of July. Early work uh, with Earl Oliver Stone, he uh, did The Doors as well, The Patriot, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, uh, Man of Steel, uh, Independence Day, and had just finished editing Avatar 2 and 3 that will be released, I believe, late this year and uh, sometime next year. 
No, I think they skipped two years. I think that Disney was intentionally staggering them with what they were originally going to do releases for Christmas or whatever. Yeah, but apparently he had finished his work. He had been working at home due to COVID, and uh, he passed away at 59, unfortunately, but had been working with James Cameron on those projects uh, shortly before his passing. I know that some people are going to immediately single him out for his work on Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, which is known to be one of the worst comic book adaptations ever. I really don't think that the editing was the problem with that film. In fact, I think there was a little too much editing, and the only way to truly watch that film is to watch the supersized cut so that you don't miss all of the stuff that they had to take out, because that movie really should have been about four hours, which means it should have been about two movies, and they just tried to supersize that into one thing, and even then it probably still didn't work. Uh, but the, the editing really wasn't the issue. I did appreciate Man of Steel. Independence Day is a classic. The Patriot, I thought, was good before Mel Gibson got canceled. And, I mean, The Doors was a classic film in its its day. And I haven't seen Born on the Fourth of July what he won his Oscar for. But, I mean, it's a classic Oliver Stone movie from the period before Oliver Stone waded way too far into the conspiracy hawk stuff. So, that being said... I mean, to lose somebody at 43 who had just been no, starting to build 59. a career. 59. He was 59. I'm talking about Lindsay oh, Pearl. sorry. To lose somebody at 43 and in some oddly conspicuous uh, circumstances that I don't think were quite clear, and I, I don't want to speculate on anything in that particular regard, but on someone who had just been starting to build a career, that's very unfortunate, whereas the rest of these people at least had some level of accomplishment of career at that point. Collectively, again, uh, we appreciate all of them and their work and the things that they brought to some of the movies that, and for that matter, TV shows that we loved. We take a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's go to best funniest lines. I'll start out with, Leave it out, you tosses. You only had one job to do. This is my favorite line. Danny Ocean. Ted Nugent called. He wants his shirt back. I would have put that one down, but that requires such context. You have to see Rusty's shirt. (laughs) Yes. I've used that line in so many different ways since this film. Where, you know, like, um, your mother will wear some boots and I'll go... The uh, hobbits called, and they want their sh- their boots back. Oh, but see, that requires also a context that mom doesn't have. Not to mention, hobbits don't wear shoes. Whatever. I'm just I'm just thinking of something off the cuff because I can't remember. I've done it multiple times. That's a really poor example, but okay. Okay, and so well, I have lots of poor examples. Among them, my children. As long as you're willing to take the hit on that one. <laughs> yes Frank Catton Might as well call it White Jack uh, Terry Benedict I know everything that happens in my hotels Danny Ocean Should I put the towels back? Terry No, the towels you can keep This is a line that I've used When I really want to be a condescending prick So many times Turt Malloy 1036 Get a watch that works Saul Bloom If you ever ask me that question again, Daniel you will not wake up in the morning. 
Linus Caldwell. Apparently, he's got a record longer than my... Well, it, it's long. <laughs> Any others? Saul Bloom, I can assure you, Mr. Benedict, that your generosity in this matter will not be overlooked. Rusty and Linus, you scared? You suicidal? Only in the morning. Frank Catton, my, you have lovely hands. Do you moisturize? <laughs> Rusty and Danny, I need the reason. Don't say money. Why do this? Why not do it? Because yesterday I walked out of the joint after losing four years of my life in your cold decking teen beat cover, boys. Because the house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes, the house takes you. Unless, when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big, and then you take the house. Been practicing that speech, haven't you? Little bit, did I rush it? Felt like I rushed it. No, it was good, I liked it. Teen beat thing was a little bit harsh. <laughs> Alright. Are you done? I'm done. Ruben, look, we go all the way back, and uh, I owe you from that thing with the guy in the place, and I'll never forget it. I always have used that line. (laughs) You know, the thing with the guy in the place that one time. Oh, I love that line. Rusty and Danny, you'd need at least a dozen guys doing a combination of cons. Like what? What do you think? Off the top of my head, I'd say you're looking at a Boski, a Jim Brown, a Miss Daisy, two Jethros, and a Leon Spinks. Not to mention the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever. Which apparently these are code names for actual things they used in the movie. I don't know what they refer to exactly, but they were supposedly used. Danny and Rusty. Which one is the amazing Yen? He's the little Chinese guy. And then finally Ruben in one of the classic lines that always got one of my classmates roaring every time. You guys are pros. The best. I'm sure you can make it out of the casino. Of course lest we forget, once you're out the front door, you're still in the middle of the fucking desert. (laughs) It's just the delivery of that. I I can't even do it justice. It's Elliot Gould. Oh, yes. Ladies and gentlemen. I love Elliot Gould. And uh, eventually we'll do MASH, the movie. Uh, And uh, that was uh, one of Elliot Gould's greatest roles. uh, Do we have to? Yes. What an atrocious movie. Anyway, <sighs> okay. let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy's up first. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go second. While some of the legacy has waned on this in recent years, these were the absolute star-making movies for Clooney, Pitt, and Damon for their careers, as well as Cheadle and Bernie Mac. Not to mention, I mentioned already the the extra chapter that we got with Carl Reiner. So... If you want to throw in the fact that it had two sequels and the spin-off Ocean's 8, try and recreate this environment and universe. These are the most successful movies of Steven Soderbergh's career, and he's Hollywood royalty at this point. But I do think the audience has left a little for these movies in recent years, and although I do think this was a cable movie staple for a number of years, I'm going to end up at a four for the industry and a three for the audience for seven. I don't. I still think these have certain staying power, and again, I mean, obviously, my social circle is middle aged, but really, uh, I just see you hanging out with a bunch of fifteen-year-olds all the time. They really get your old guy shtick. Be careful; it's a little creepy. Anyway, just like baldness or pedophilia, but this still has staying power. Uh, and I'll say that the waning aspect of this from the public is more on Oceans 12 and 13. 
because there are a lot of people who have either seen them once or twice and said, eh, it's not as good as the original. Uh, I think that's where the, the, the legacy starts to drop for the public. So I went with a 4.5 on public. And from the industry, I still think there's a certain aspect. It, it's almost like it's a benchmark that some producers and directors try to establish as being cool in certain ensemble casts, that they uh, try to strive towards the Ocean's Eleven level. But it's probably something they don't necessarily readily see or think that they can obtain. So I went a 3.5 there. So that gives me an 8. So that's a 7.5 average between us. Impact significance. Uh, This spawned two sequels within six years. Clooney, Pitt, Damon, Cheadle, Mac, etc. all went on to bigger careers, partly based on the success of this being, I think, their biggest movie star, just pure movie star roles. The critics and audiences mostly liked this at the time and pretty much ate up two additional sequels. And I would say this was probably a five for the industry as far as impact because you had Clooney go on to start doing a lot of other pictures. He'd do one of these and then he'd make a good night and good luck. And then he'd go make a Syriana or whatever. And then Pitt would go on and do like two or three other projects, but come back to do one of these. And these just seem to revolve around the culture for about six, seven years. And even now we still had one kind of come back around. We wanted to do a spinoff because we still wanted to hang out in this world. So I said a five for industry For the audience, I'll go with a four. I think that they were moved. They were engaged. They wanted to be a part of this universe. But were these the biggest films that were on the calendar every year? No, but were they probably number two or number three for a lot of people? Probably. So mid-2000s, these were a big uh, staple franchise, at least, that wasn't uh, shooting lasers or big explosions, big action-packed sets. This was just a bunch of movie stars hanging out with each other trying to cheat other people or steal money from other people. So I went with a four for the audience. That's a nine total. Okay. First of all, other people. Okay. It's a freaking casino. No one feels bad when a casino loses money. That's what makes this so great because casino owners are considered to be the robber barons of the 21st century. And it's only going to get worse with sports gambling now. Oh, of course. This is a film that had an 80 or an $85 million budget and grossed $450 million. That's 3.5, 3.7 times it's a budget. Try five. Yeah. All right. So I, I have to say that impact in the moment, this was about a 4.5. It could have done a little better simply because it was the fifth, but I... Is that a 4.5 for for audience or for industry? For industry, like you said, this spurred on the careers of of so many of these. Because, I mean, you know, Matt Damon was okay, you know, was a star to some extent. But, you know. He was doing small Miramax films for the most part. Save for trying to do that one cameo in Saving Private Ryan and having Goodwill Hunting. Like, he was not an A-list star. He was kind of a B-list star. And this kind of raised his profile 
to be very similar to his buddy and longtime best friend, Ben Affleck, who was an A-list star at the time. Yes. So I think this is a five for the industry. So 9.5. So that's a 9.25 between us. I have not needed help on the math so far. Good. Novelty? I went with an 8.5. Wow, you are going steadily higher than I am on everything so far. The reason I went with 8.5 is is because it was a remake of a film, but a completely different remake. Moreover, this had a level of sophistication, of coolness, of... I mean, it, it was beyond anything that I had ever seen up to this point. Even the music that played the closing credits, you know, that had that snappy, cool jazz sound to it. So I, I, I couldn't give it a complete, you know, a, a greater number, but I went with an 8.5 based upon just the feel, the look of the film in general. I went with a 7. I think it's derivative just from kind of the basic plotting and premise and the primary character title name. But I agree with you for the most part that this does create a new remake on a unestablished movie or franchise. I don't know how many people when this originally came out were familiar with the old Rat Pack movie. And so I think you could get a real separation where there wasn't because it wasn't a hugely popular or successful movie create a remake that wasn't going to be compared against the original. And for many people, this is the original Ocean's Eleven, that this is the thing. So from that standpoint, I think because of the freshness and originality, but we also talked about the environment and you've kind of alluded to it with the music, but there's just an aura or a intangible quality to these movies that I don't think you see in any other set of movies. And they tried to recreate it in the spinoff, and it just wasn't right. And it has to be so carefully tailor-made, and I think only Steven Soderbergh could have created it, that this movie has a certain feel and exudes that comfortable charisma and con man fun quality that you're not going to get in almost any other film series or franchise. The fact that they were able to successfully do it, I think, for two more films, and particularly as far as I'm concerned, in 13, and do it at all, to me speaks volumes. But for the novelty for this one, I went with a 7. Because of its derivativeness, but also because it creates a certain atmosphere that is unlike anything else. So that's a 7.75 between us. Classicness, your category. This is a film that, I mean, it's the first portion of the 21st century. You know, it's Ocean's Eleven, actually 12 when you actually add in Tess. And what you're talking about is two of the characters are African-American and one is Asian-American. So to that extent, it's more open to a broader definition of the face of what is America and minorities in general. I had to give it some points down because this is clearly a testosterone-driven movie. Tess is not really a central character. She is the trope. She is the prize that is won at the end of the film based upon the male testosterone-driven aspect of this. So I had to give it points down for that. 
And so I gave it a 7.5 for classicness based upon that and the fact that this is really so male-driven. Okay, so finally I had a score that was above yours. Let me ask this question. How many movie stars are in this film that's 20 years old by this point? Recognizable movie stars. Julia Roberts, Clooney, Damon, Pitt, Cheadle. I don't know if Bernie Mac was a movie star per se, but at least a television star. I mean, he was a central character on a really long-running TV show. You want to talk about Carl Reiner at least was a notable name and had some fame after this. So I'm trying to think who else. I don't know if you'd identify Andy Garcia, but I'll throw him yes, in there. Yes, Andy Garcia I think you'd have to consider. Okay, so seven or eight at least big names. Uh, oh, excuse me, Scott Kahn, you can throw him in there, and Casey Affleck. Casey Affleck is the only guy on this list that has had any inkling of being canceled in 20 years. <laughs> yes. The fact that you have such an A-list cast and almost none of them have had any issue. I mean, yeah, maybe Scott Kahn has some like jerk moments that people have recorded and it hasn't gone well, but I don't think anybody's like canceling Scott Kahn. He's just imitating his dad. Well, yes. So, but from that standpoint, just the fact that we have so many big names and none of them have been canceled, I have to give that just by itself an extra point. But I don't think that this movie suffers from being male-driven. I think that kind of is a camaraderie thing that helps enhance it, even though I understand where you're coming from. But it's like a bunch of, it's almost like a fraternity, the way that they act around each other and that they're just inviting. The weird sensitivity part that I would maybe mark a half point down is exactly what you said, that Yen just speaks in Chinese, except for maybe like two expletive-laced lines. And outside of that, they just... Yeah, and it's... Basically just them interpreting everything that he says. Like they just understand and then they'll just react beyond that. <laughs> when, like in the uh, scene where they're at Ruben's house describing the plan and he just starts talking in Chinese and he makes one motion. Nope, tunneling is out. <laughs> like I don't think you could get away with that today. You'd have somebody at least respond in Chinese and then explain what's going on to everybody else. Or have it like subtitled or something. But it kind of adds to the fraternity level humor that this sometimes has in this movie. And yet it still seems above it. There really isn't anything unusual. There aren't any really racist jokes. It's not really taking and making fun of a character. I mean, even Yen seems to be in on the joke every time that he's part of something. And it kind of gets enhanced in 12 when it goes a little bit off the rails and what he does with his money. But we can get to that next week. So I ended up actually at an 8.5. Okay. So that's an eight average between us. Rewatchability, I stated last week. I'll state it again, and I'll state it for all time. I knew when we created the rewatchability category, this was going to be my definition of what a 10 is. This is this has always been a 10 for me. So let's get yours. 10. Okay. This is the film that it's... Uh... A lazy Sunday more or afternoon. There's not any sports on. And I'm kind of like, want to just veg out and just like relax and try to get the blood pressure under control. And sit in my overstuffed easy chair that you and your sisters gave me for Father's Day and 
put this on and if I drift off for 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I can wake up and I can go, oh, here, this is where we are again. And not one matter at all. So audience score on this one, an 88% for Google users and 80% for Rotten Tomato users, which I thought was way low. That ends as an 8.4 overall for that category. So we had a 7.5 for Legacy, 9.25 for Impact Significance, 7.75 for Novelty, an 8 for Classicness, a 10 for Rewatchability, and an 8.4 for Audience Score, giving us 50.9 as a total score, which currently would place it in between The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly from 1966 and Wall-E from 2008 for currently 25th on the list. I actually thought it was going to finish higher than that. I mean, it had a chance, but we have a lot of movies that are ahead of it. I mean, are you realistically putting this movie ahead of uh, Die Hard? Silence of the Lambs, The Wizard of Oz, Groundhog Day, The Matrix, Jurassic Park. Like, our top 15 is like a a real heavy hitter murderer's row of classic films. Yeah, I'm sure. You have to really get good marks to get above probably 16 on this list. Okay. So anyway, remaining questions. How did the crew get in the bags with the flyers for the hookers? I know. You I mentioned this that. to you when we were watching this. Where, where could they have possibly fit that in? The SWAT crew hadn't come in yet. Did Danny carry them with him into the elevator shaft? Did they plant them on the elevator ahead of time? Otherwise, where are you getting three or four duffel bags and filling them with flyers for hookers that they have to be taken out of the vault in order to transport up and then do the diversion with the van. I just don't know where in that sequence they were able to sneak all of that material in with what they had available to them. To me, the only logistical standpoint would be is that they had hidden them in the top of the elevator shaft somehow way ahead of time. But then again, it begs the question, how did they do that without anyone noticing? I don't know. They could have just probably stood out in the street and got enough to fill those bags. I remember the first oh, that's time. Not, getting the flyers is not the problem. It's getting them into I the right understand. places. I'm just saying, first time I was in Vegas, I probably could have filled one of those duffel bags just walking up and down up and down the uh, strip there in Vegas because I, I, I couldn't actually believe those those flyers. Do you have a remaining question? No, other than I was going to just make one comment, which is I've had the privilege based on things that I've done as far as plays and places I've been and such. And we'll talk about another of my encounters with celebrities next week. But having met or having seen Scott Kahn on a... You do this every week. This is remaining questions, not remaining comments. You never have a question. You always have comments. That's why when I say final thoughts, you never have anything when you have already shot your load way early. That's how you got here. I, neither here nor there. Anyway. But, uh, no, no further que- No remaining questions for me. All right. How does Benedict not recognize Rusty's voice as the SWAT guy at the end? He had just been on a cell phone call with him. He had a southern drawl. Okay. Yeah, Brad Pitt's voice isn't that distinctive. Why didn't you have somebody else lead the crew? You could have literally had anybody else other than maybe Linus or Frank Catton. Because they had also just been in a room with him. I don't know, get Saul when he's not doing his Russian accent. All right, final 
remaining one, and I mentioned this all again to you the other day while we were watching the movie. How does Yen survive the blast? It basically rips apart three metal safes or uh, cases in the middle of the room, and yet a 95-pound Chinese guy who clearly had to be on top of something so as not to set off the floor sensors because they only had switched out the cameras, not the sensors themselves. They couldn't turn off the alarms. How does he not die? That's my remaining questions. Okay. Now that we picked that apart. So now, final thoughts for the week? I have had an opportunity for various things, being in, you know, seeing plays in New York and and uh, being in various hotels and such for my travels to see celebrities. But you and I both happened to experience seeing Scott Kahn on the boat going from the Statue of Liberty back to New York. Other way around. We were leaving New York and they stuck around for an extra moment. He got on and then got off at the Statue of Liberty with us. No, it was the other way around. No. Yeah, it was. No. Because we had just picked up the camera, which I had left by the Statue of Liberty. Get a memory that works. Oh, I do. So is that like to raise some specter of like some bigger thought? Or you just no, wanted to say, just I saw Scott I'm going to comment next week when we, that one of the uh, actresses from uh, next week's film, uh, I got to uh, meet or somewhat meet, be around. So, so another you're just using this as an ego stroke of name dropping. Well, yeah. There's my name drop. That doesn't pick up well on audio. Okay. Anyway, uh, remaining thoughts for me? No, not really. I'm just going to enjoy the next couple of weeks yet while we do these movies. I guess if I have anything, and we talked about this last night, we don't have the full official rules, but we can at least say that there is going to be a wager on this year's Oscars preview. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be fun, one way or the other. Because I already have the movie I, I have picked out for If You Lose. So the wager is we are going to somehow gamify our Oscars preview with our predictions, which the loser has to have a movie picked by the other one. It has to be a bad film. You can't just pick like something good, but something that would be really terrible to have the other person watch and review. And they have to do a solo episode in the style of the rest of the podcast. So best performance, best scene, all of these other things. But anyway, basically do a solo pod for content. So you all get to experience their pain and then put that out. For me, I'm going to tell you, I'm already highly considering Biodome. <laughs> With Pauly Shore. Uh, the least talented human on the face of the earth. Mm, yeah, I know. And it's him running around in enclosed environment, basically a forest, making really bad jokes for two hours. <laughs> uh, Don't worry, I could make you watch Jack and Jill or Norbit. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, but yes, in case I lose... You'll have to also pick one that will be excruciating for me to watch and review. I, I'm uh, I have several in mind. Uh, Ishtar being one. Okay. I'll have to think of a few others. There's got to be. There's got to be a couple that have just got to like set you off. 
It may be a silent film for that matter. Okay. I don't know. I'll figure it out. I could make you do Batman and Robin with the bat nipples. Well, at least it's Clooney. Yeah, at least it's Clooney, and it's Arnold doing a bunch of ice puns. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Oh, no, even better. No, I know exactly what I should do. I should have you watch Ace Ventura 2. (laughs) Oh, there we go. Caddyshack 2. (laughs) The list of the worst possible films. Uh, Anyway. We'll figure it out, but yes, uh, we have not figured out the exact rules for this competition, but you can tell that we're clearly going to have fun watching the pain of the other, so. (sighs) Yeah. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be covering the second of the Oceans trilogy, Oceans 12, directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by David Holmes, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast. That's G-M-O-A-T podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.